After Jacob meets Esau, he goes and lives in a town called Shechem. Shechem means shoulder or ridge in Hebrew and is a small Canaanite town in the hill country of Ephraim, about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. It eventually became an important political and religious center for Israel. Today it is known as Tel Balata. Shechem is first seen in Genesis 12, the place where God promises Abram his descendants. And as I mentioned earlier, this is where Jacob settled and where actually some unfortunate events such as the incident with Dinah occurred, as you'll read later tonight. Now later in the Old Testament, when the Israelites inherited the Promised Land, Shechem was given to Ephraim and was actually selected by Joshua to be a city of refuge. In the book of Judges, Shechem is where Abimelech murders his brothers to become king. Later, King Solomon's son Rehoboam fortified the city of Shechem and made it the capital of the northern kingdom whenever the nation split. So there you go, a little bit about Shechem, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us open in prayer. Fathers, we go through this part of Genesis again, looking at Jacob and his struggles. We, we pray, Lord, that you would give us, I guess, more faith, more trust in you as we walk through life. It seems like no matter how much we how many mountaintop experiences we have you or how close we feel at times. It seems like life can knock us off balance when we least expect it. And it's those times, Lord, where we seem to forget your faithfulness and we seem to forget your promises. And we need to remember anew that you're there and that you care and that you see and that you know and that you're still working good for those who love you. So, Father, our prayer tonight is that you would help us trust more, that you would help us trust you with more and more things in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen. So we pick up in chapter 32 of Genesis, and we're going to go through a couple sections here that um, that talk about wrestling with God, talk about trying to trust him with more when life gets really complicated. And then we're going to look at some stuff that just seems like faith kind of flew out the window. And and what I love about scripture is that it talks about real people and real struggles. I think sometimes we we sanctify, we, we sanctify, right? Some of these people in the Bible, like they never messed up. But man, as you go through the pages... They're not so different than us. And so we pick up in chapter 32, verse 1. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanim. Now, one of the coolest parts about that is he just gets done facing off Laban. Laban was his uncle and mistreated him for years and years and years. Yet God protected him. God gave him wife. God gave him children. God gave him uh, property and and all sorts of stuff where he came with all sorts of herds and servants and all the kind of stuff like that. God had protected him and prospered him in spite of his uncle's attempts. His uncle took off after him to try to reclaim some of these things and God again protected him. And when God, God protected him, Jacob was able to stand up to Laban, call spade a spade, right? And was able to walk away and go back to his promised land, back to his homeland. Something that God had told him to do is something he had longed to do for a while, but now that he was gone from Laban, his brother Esau remained in the promised land, in the homeland. His brother Esau, last time they had gotten together, had promised to kill him because he stole his birthright, because he tricked his dad. And so he starts moving on the way home to see his dad, to see his brother, to see if everything was okay. God had told him to go home, so he's kind of hopeful that everything's going to work out and that there's not going to be any struggle, any drama. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, 
Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So what's interesting about Jacob here is he takes on a very deferential approach to his brother. I think um, conscience makes uh, us doubt a little bit, doesn't it? I think we're on moral high ground. It's easier to trust the Lord because, you know, we've been trying to do what's right and we've been on the moral high ground and we've been trying to be obedient to God and there's a lot of promises that back us up. But when we've sinned, some of that confidence kind of drains, doesn't it? What if God punishes us for this concept, for the thing that we did? What if he's just legitimately and righteously paying us back for some of our behavior? And we want to trust the Lord, and we heard his promise, right? I promise I'll take care of you. I'll be with you, Jacob. Just go home. I've got you in this. And he had him for sure with Laban, and now he's facing his brother Esau. But he, he says, make sure when you go and tell him that I'm coming, call my Lord and that I'm his servant. And, and why would that be so important? When he tricked his dad into giving him the blessing, the blessing entailed rulership over his brother, It included sovereignty over the land that they owned. All the property was to be his. It was the spiritual blessing, absolutely, but it was also all those other things. Esau had wanted those primary things, those things that weren't so much spiritual but were in land and in value and in property. And so when Jacob's coming back, he's just saying, hey, brother, I I, I just wanted the spiritual stuff. And I want to say, if you want to rule over the land, that's cool. I just want to come home in peace, and I just want to be where God tells me, right? All my descendants are going to come from, and and all the promises that he's made throughout history to to grandpa and to dad, right, that that they're going to be mine as well, but I need to come back home. And if you'll accept me, man, you you can rule over the land for this period of time because it's not really right now that I need it. It's for my descendants, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. Yay! With 400 men with him, right? Armed men with him. Now that seemed a little bit less of a yay. Yay, my brother's coming to meet me. Not so yay, he's coming with 400 guys. Now if you're Esau, it just makes sense, right? He's coming back. Yeah, he said all the nice things. Servant, whatever, Lord. But, you know, I know this guy. He's, He's always angling for something, maybe. So... He sets out with 400 guys. Now, I've read different things about this, and and some commentators just think, well, maybe the land was pretty dangerous, so he just sent out with 400 guys to protect them. Seems like a lot of guys to do that, but maybe. More likely, though, we sent out to just kind of establish, if you're trying to take me over, brother, we're going to throw down over that right now. And so I'm going to come in force, and I'm hoping that's not what your intention is. I'm hoping that you come in peace like you said, but I'm going to make sure that you know what's in front of you. And so he sets out this way. It seems clear that they seem to drive the guys. It talks about in Scripture these guys being armed later on. And so he's coming with these 400 guys, and it's intimidating in presence. And I try to think about that. This is a different time, but I, I don't know if I get 400 guys to follow me into battle, right? I, I just don't think that. I, I mean, I know there's three, four, five hundred people in this church, but I just don't know if you'd all follow me into battle, right? So... So the reality is, I mean, Esau is a guy that was able to rally the troops. He was able to talk to his kinsmen and say, hey, we're gonna, we stand to lose quite a bit here. They already took over the area of Seir and, and, and Edom and, and probably used the same guys to help him do that. If my brother comes and he takes us away, we don't have anything. So he rallies the troops and they go. And it seems like he was an intent in causing again harm, just like Laban, 
I'm going to show my brother once and for all that I'm the one that's in control here. And so obviously then it says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will escape. Jacob, upon hearing that his brothers come in with this army, starts to freak out a little bit. Now again, he had just, literally just seen God save him from Laban. Laban came with not 400 guys, probably more closer to 50 to 100 guys, right? Those guys enough would have enough power to inflict harm upon Jacob. Now 400 guys are coming. But he had seen how God had rescued him from his hand, how he had prospered him in his, from his hand, how he had done all these amazing things, how he had warned Laban in a dream and he couldn't say anything good or bad. Literally just happened. But then he forgets and this new threat's coming with 400 guys. Okay, God, where's your presence? Okay, God, where's your protection? He's coming with 400 guys and freaking out. And I just think it goes to point to a lot of stuff in life. If we could just remember, we would have peace in that moment, wouldn't we? Well, God said that he'd protect me. So this is all good. It's, I guess, a welcoming party. Cool. You know, or God said he'd protect me, that I don't have to freak out about this. I'll, I'll go bravely and I'll talk to him and maybe God will bless that conversation and it will all go right. If you just trusted God, you can approach the thing in a whole different way than when you freak out about it and you forget that his promises and you forget his presence. It's like the guy I keep talking about. He was out of work for a year and, and struggled during that time. And then he got a job at the end of the year and he said, if I just trusted God all the way through, I could have had a year vacation. Different way of going through the same time frame, isn't it? Peace comes from trust. If you want more peace in your life, God says, trust me with more in your life. And there's all sorts of promises in Scripture that should give us peace. Number one, you're forgiven. That should give you peace. Peace of knowing that God doesn't hold anything against you. Peace of knowing that he's already paid the price, that your eternity in heaven is secure. Peace of knowing that he's got you as you walk through life. Peace comes from trust. And so Jacob, he does what he thinks is wise, what he's smart. One of the strategies if people were going to attack your caravan was to divide them in two, and so he does that, thinking maybe one could escape, and so he does what he can do, and then he goes to the Lord rightly. And Jacob said, O God, my father Abraham, and God, my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. And so what is he doing? He's reminding God of what he's told him, of his promises here. God, you told me to go back. You told me that you would be with me. I'm not worthy of one of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. And so he's recognizing, God, you've been there. He's trying to remember all of what God has done. He's testifying before God, you've been faithful all the way. So please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the, the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." If you want to, I was talking to a gal the other day, and she was having a great anxiety over an upcoming job opportunity. And one of the things I told her is I said, you don't have to stay in that anxiety. Give that part to God. Trust him when he says he's there for you. Trust him when he says that I, I will work all things for your good. Trust him that he's got you in this. 
You can't control what the interviewer does. You can't control how the interviewer takes what you do. All you can control is you give the rest to God. And if you want peace, you trust God with the rest. We all have fears over different things. Some of it's finance, some of it's medical, some of it's job opportunities, some of it's the unknown. More and more, what I want you to try to learn how to do is to give your fears and your anxieties and your worries to God. You can't do anything with them anyway. It's a false sense of trying to control the uncontrollable. Decide to trust God instead. Remind him of his promises. If you're lonely, remind yourself of this promise that he's with you always, that he'll never forsake you or leave you. If you're beating yourself up because of past sins, remind yourself that he's promised that you're forgiven in Jesus' name. If you're worried about how things are going to transpire, how there could possibly be a light at the end of the tunnel, remind yourself that he works all things for the good of those who love him. Remind yourself of his promises. Trust then in those promises and find peace. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present to his, for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. It's over 580 animals that he's sending forward. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong and what are you doing and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed in the droves, and says, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought I may appease him with a present that goes on before me, and afterward I shall see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. There were several things going on here. First, Jacob totally trusted that God's promises, just like Abraham did, were going to happen whether he saw them or not. Okay? It's, it, Abraham said to Lot, you go this way, I'll go this way. He wasn't so tied to something that he had to have right now. He just trusted God's promises would be done irregardless that one day all that land would be his. Jacob took a similar tack with Esau saying, and you can be the temporary Lord, you can do whatever, but the reality is God has promised me and my descendants this place. And we're going to rule over this land someday. And we're going to have all sorts of descendants someday, and this land will be mine someday. And he trusted the Lord with that truth. And then he tries what he can. Again, you do what you can and trust God with the rest. He puts some money behind his words, right? Put your money where your mouth is. And he sent presents to Esau. Maybe this will show him that I'm really, I, I don't want his stuff, that I'm not interested in the land. I hear half this stuff. I just, I just want to make sure we're cool. I, I want to make sure that we don't have to throw down over this. I, I want to make sure that we can live in the land peaceably. So he takes a shot and he does what his brain allows him to figure out and he does what he can do and he sends these droves ahead of him. The same night he arose and he took two wives, his two servants, female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabuk. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. 
And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip, hip pocket, hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, you shall, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. In other words, it will no longer be called one who is a supplanter, but one who prevails. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place, name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and my life has been delivered. And so something happened that night. You get the sense that it started off as an internal wrestling in prayer with God. He was still very afraid of his brother Esau. He knew tomorrow, the next day, he was going to meet, and what would happen would be what would happen. He was praying to the Lord with all his might that he would protect him, that he would save him. Somehow during the course of that night, that became not just a spiritual kind of prayer backwards and forwards, but became a wrestling match with God. How that all went down, I don't know. You know, you saw him in camp or he was praying, and all of a sudden that prayer, that, that physical or that spiritual wrestling with God became a physical wrestling with God, and, and somewhere in the midst of that, he realized he was wrestling an actual person. And he realized that there was something going on in that, and so he held on with all his might. All the way through Scripture, we get the sense that Jacob's a rather strong man. You know, moving, moving the plate that was over the, the well, um, and setting up the rock pillars that were in, at Bethel when they were first there. Here he wrestles with God, and not that God was weak in any way. God allowed him to wrestle with him, to hold on to him, just like a big brother or a dad would allow his kid to kind of stay in the wrestling mats for a time, right? And I remember wrestling with my dad growing up. And there was a time where I thought maybe, just maybe I could pin him, and then no, it just didn't happen. Um, but the reality is, so God was wrestling with him. Jacob begins to realize the significance of this. And the guy says, let go of me. He says, no, not until you bless me. I know something's going on here. I know that somehow I was praying and then now somehow I'm wrestling. I know that God is here in this place. And so the angel, many believe Christ himself, then blessed Jacob, saying, I've got you. Your name shall be Israel. I've got you in this place. I've got you with your brother. I've already promised that I'll take care of it. Trust me, he's saying. And Jacob was so moved by that experience that he renamed the place. From then on, and then God touched his hip socket and put it out of joint as if to remind Jacob that, yeah, this was real, right? We actually did what you thought we did. And so taken was Israel with that that for the rest of their days, they wouldn't eat that place of a lamb or, or any, any animal. It was considered sacred because of what God had done. The sun rose upon him and he passed and Penuel limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming, 400 men with him. So he divided up the children among Leah and Rachel and two small servants and he puts the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph, last of all. Again, 400 guys are coming at you. The last thing you heard about your brother is that he wanted to kill you. He was afraid. 
And certainly the intent of bringing 400 guys wasn't just to protect Jacob as he was traveling. It was to make sure that Jacob didn't try to take over. He himself finally went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times. During that period of time in history, one of the things that you showed a king was you bowed to him seven times as you approached him. It was to show deference. It was to show that he's king and you're not, all those different things. And so he treats Esau like a king, showing him that kind of deference. Again, saying, I'm not trying to take over. I just want to come home. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is not the description of a man that's been holding on to resentment in recent history. It's the one that seems like he's so relieved his brother didn't want to go to war, right? He's so glad that his brother just came home in peace. He didn't even see an army with Jacob. He's so glad that it was just that intent just to come home, to be peaceful with his brother, to reconcile with that relationship that had been broken. Somewhere you get the sense in the past Esau had dealt with his anger. I mean, 20 years away will do that. And then you maybe even blame yourself a little bit. He took off because he heard, I was mad. I said some things that maybe I meant, maybe I didn't, but 20 years. And so he runs up to him and he hugs him and he kisses him on the neck and they weep. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And he had certainly had all that was Isaac's, which was a huge amount. They had certainly grown richer during this period of time. He didn't need 500 more. Although, to be fair, 500 and, what did I say, 80, 80 animals, not an insignificant gift to anybody. And he's looking around and he's saying, man, brother, just keep this. I I don't need it. I mean, the fact that you didn't come to go to war, the fact that you came home to reconcile, the fact that you're here and you have all your kids with you, this is a celebration. Keep what you have. But again, one of the traditions during this time was you knew you had fully reconciled if somebody accepted your gift. And so Jacob says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has gracious, dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. So just to make, in a sense, to make sure that Jacob knew that he had forgiven, and to make sure that he knew that they were good now, he accepted the gift, which was just one of the customs at that time. And so they reconciled, and again, Jacob got to see God do the amazing Right up to the point where where Esau started toward him, he didn't know whether it would be right or wrong, whether it would be war or not, whether they would be decimated and dead. And when he wrapped him up in his arms, he had to think, man, this is cool, God. I can't believe what you just did. So Esau said, uh, then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Sir. 
It's an interesting thing. It's kind of an excuse. He's probably right not to coincide in the same place with Esau, his brother. They're very different people. Esau's wives were a bird to mom and dad. They probably would be a bird to what he's trying to accomplish in his family. Probably not staying in the same place. It was probably wise. But the excuses that he gave were not that of a strong person. In fact, it's interesting as the next part transpires, you'll come to know Jacob as interestingly one that had amazing faith, but was one that was sort of a non-confronter in a lot of different ways. And if you think back, sort of a non-confronter, right? He didn't confront his dad or, or, or Esau over the blessing, which would have, you know, maybe been a very difficult thing to do at that time because you certainly didn't disrespect mom and dad in any way, apparently, except when you trick them, you know? And he didn't confront Laban during all those years, at least not in a way that was significant enough for Laban to be in any way scared of him. He didn't confront Laban until finally, right, he, he let him go through all his stuff looking for these idols that he said that he took. And it was only after he didn't find them that he finally spoke up. And again, he goes back to Esau and instead of going back equal or saying, I just want to live here, brother, he, he defers to him in a, in a pretty significant way. As we go forward... Now Esau just wants to take him back. He wants to reunite him with dad. He wants to bring him home. And he's like, well, let me take some time. I, I need some space. God did a great thing here, but I just, I don't know if we should hang out right now. So Esau said, let me leave with you some people who are with me. But he said, what, what need is there? Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, it's interesting, in the commentators, it would suggest these were temporary housing, so it wasn't like he was going to stay there a long time, but he finally got, he had just fled from Laban, he had driven his family hard. They were going to stay there for a period of time. Maybe they stayed there a little longer than they thought they were. But even once finishing that, he doesn't journey then to be with his brother and his dad. For then it says, And Jacob came finally and safely to the city of Sechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padamaran. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hammer, Sechem's dad, or Sechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Heloi Israel. In other words, Israel's God. And he used the name that God had given him, Israel's God. I'm trusting you, God. Now, most of the commentators suggest that during this time he went to see his dad and see his brother and stuff like that. And then he, this is just where they kind of located. But it's interesting he moved right next to a city that was in the land of Canaan. And, and again, their sin hadn't been up to the full measure, right? I mean, it wasn't time for punishment yet. But it was certainly a land that was wicked. It was a land that God was going to give over to Israel in a period of a few hundred years. And he moved right next to a city, probably to enjoy some of the trade that was there, some of the benefits of being next to people. But because the city was evil, I guess it just didn't occur to him that it could affect his family. Affected Lot and his family, right? All the times we see people living up next to the cities, right, that were evil, it affected their family. And so he moves next to Sechem, he buys the plot there, he says, this is going to be my starting point, my first capital in this land that God's going to give me. He's so excited, he's trusting God with his life, you can see that by what he calls the name of the, of the, of the altar that he erects. But then the course of time passes, you get the sense that Dinah's probably in her teenage years, late, mid to late teenage years. Her brothers are probably in their early 20s at this point, at least the older ones. 
Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Sechem, the son of Hammer the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. In other words, he took her and he raped her and he wanted to make her his wife. What's disturbing about this is that this just seemed to be kind of a common experience. What you'll see in the story that progresses is that neither Hammer or his dad or anybody apologizes for what they've done. The town of Sechem doesn't seem to be outraged by the incident in any way. It was just, I don't know, one of the things that you do. She's cute. I want her to be my wife. He was a man of prominence, so he took her to make, him, make her his wife. And so his soul was drawn to Dinah and the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Sechem spoke to his father Hamer, saying, get me this girl for my wife. It's kind of an interesting thing. First he rapes her, and then he says, hey, Dad, could you go do it? So there was still some kind of semblance where the parents needed to arrange the marriage. And Dad apparently um, wasn't freaked out by this at all. And so he goes, and he talks to Jacob. Now, Jacob had heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hammer, the father of Sechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hammer spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Sechem longs for your daughter, and please give her to, me, to him as his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Sechem also said to his father and to, his, and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give to you. Ask me as great a bride price as you want, and, and, and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And so perhaps there was an element of understanding that they had wronged Dinah in this way, and they were trying to be deferential. But most commentators seem to indicate that Sechem saw this as an opportunity to kind of enlarge their little city and enlarge the wealth of their little city and encompass all the property of this wealthy landowner who moved up next to him. The son obviously just in love and wanted her to be his wife. And this interesting thing that happens next is that Jacob seems to disappear a little bit in this conversation. He was there at the beginning. He waited for his sons to come. They were outraged. Initially, they're talking to dad. But at some point, he becomes lesser and the sons become more prominent. The sons of Jacob answered Sechem and his father, Hammer, deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you becoming circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take our daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So somehow during this conversation, Jacob abdicates himself from the decision-making role. Maybe he was just listening to this uh, deal that his kids were making 
But if he was listening, it had to go against everything he had learned growing up. You don't intermingle, right, with the unbelieving nation. You don't intermingle with evil. I mean, he went and got somebody from his hometown. He didn't want to go back there, not with Laban the way he was, right? And Abraham went and got somebody from back there, or for, for, for Isaac. And, of course, Abraham came from back there. Everybody who was in this lineage of the promise had gone back to find a faithful wife. Perhaps he thought that avenue was now closed with Laban and they had to figure out how to marry some of the people in the land, I don't know. So he just listened. Or maybe he went to take a time out, I, I don't know. But his sons took over at this point. And they did a lot of wrong things here. First of all, they, they used circumcision as a way to deceive the Sechemites. Circumcision was the sign that you are my people. It was a sacrament. It would be like using baptism or the Lord's Supper to deceive a people. You guys get circumcised and then you're cool. You'll be God's family. You'll be one of us. It's all, it doesn't matter what you believe at this point. Just all you got to do is get circumcised. Like all you got to do is get baptized and we're all good. You don't have to believe after that. It's all fine. You know? But that's not what Scripture says. That's not what they were saying. But it's what they said to the Suchamites. And if you do this thing, we'll know that you love God and we will intermingle and we'll be one people. But because of our faith, we can't do that if you won't do this one thing. It was kind of a win-win for them, apparently. Uh, number one, they could take their sister and go or they'd all be circumcised. If Jacob was listening to all this, he couldn't imagine what was in the hearts of Simeon and Levi at this point. But their words pleased Hammer and Hammer's son, Sechem, and the young man did not delay to do this very thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. I mean, he was smitten. He was in love. He had done a horrible thing, but he, I guess he wanted to make it right at this point. Now, he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamer and his son Sechem came to the gates of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough to, for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamar and his son Sechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the city gate. And the third day... So... The disturbing part about these guys is they committed this atrocity and they didn't seem to think it was a deal. The horrible thing about Jacob's kids is that they were, when the, the wonderful thing is they were incensed and that they saw the wrong. The, the horrible thing is that they set up this plan to get even. And the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, and his brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hammer and his son Sechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Sechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And so whether it was just Simeon and Levi who devised this plan to go and give capital punishment to the ones that defiled their sister... Or it was all of them, but eventually all of them got involved and said, hey, there's free stuff. And so they all went and they all got the stuff and they took back, interestingly, the wives and made them servants probably and the kids and made them servants. All their livestock, all their possessions, everything. 
including probably the idols that they had at that time. In Jacob's response, so he re-enters the picture, says to Simeon Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So Jacob's main concern at this point is not that they killed a whole city, but that the consequence of that was that now they may be killed. What did you guys do? You weren't thinking. You just got even, but you didn't know. Now I'm going to get fired, right? Or, or now I'm going to have to move, or, or now they're going to come and kill me. It's like doing that to a, you know, one of the mafia families or something like that. I, I didn't think hitting them would mean anything, but you know, apparently you know, that was the godfather's son, so it's a bad deal. What's interesting, though, is it wasn't Jacob's incensedness that they went too far, that they had spilled blood over this. He didn't seem to be upset about that because his kids simply responded, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob's kids were righteous in their indignation, frustrated that dad wasn't doing anything about it, that he wasn't taking a stronger position, that he wasn't showing his outrage. That was righteous indignation, but the problem is is they turned that anger into sin in a vehicle to reap great destruction. And it did, without God's protection, put their family in a great deal of harm's way. So God said to Jacob, it's time to go, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. So God comes to him and says, it's time to go. It's time to get your family right. I want you to go to the place where you met with me at first, the place of Bethel, right? The place where they saw the angels ascending and descending. Jacob's taken upon himself. We got to get rid of this kind of effect that this town has had on us. Get rid of all the idols, right? Rachel stole the family idols that came from Laban, who obviously worshiped idols. They're in a, next to a city that obviously worshiped idols. He says, we got to get rid of all this stuff. It's causing us to lose our minds. It's causing us to make bad decisions. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may take there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign idols, foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were on their ears. And Jacob hid them underneath the Tabarith tree that was near Sechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob." We'll end there tonight, but again, one of the things I want you to see over and over is that God protects his kids even when they're wrong. It doesn't mean that he protects them from all temporal consequences to their sins, but it's like we talked about this morning, God works all things for the good of those who love him. And we may take some painful detours along the way. In this case, they couldn't stay there anymore. They had to move. They had the fear of the people coming after them. But again, God protects them even in the midst of their idiocy. And isn't that a comfort to you as you walk through life and make mistakes? That God doesn't just light you up every single time? That you don't face the maximum consequence for your sins every single time? That he puts some kind of hedge around you to protect you so that you can repent and come back to him? Can you imagine if he didn't? Can you imagine how our lives would be changed if even one sin was maxified just a little bit more than it was? Can you see how your lives would be changed?
one of the things that I want you to get is that God loves you. He knows what you can handle. And he protects us from far more than you can ever comprehend or imagine. And he does so with the idea of getting you to heaven. And so in this case, he puts a hedge around them even though they didn't deserve it. Even though they had sinned rather boldly in this case. Even though they got to a place where they didn't trust him. When he says, vengeance is mine. He didn't trust him to handle it like he did with Esau, like he did with Laban. They took matters into their own hands. Faced a temporal consequence of leaving, but he protected them from destruction. May God likewise in your life continue to protect you and watch over you. And in your sin, may he forgive and renew, and may he minimize the destructiveness of your consequences. May he do that so that one day you can be forever with him in heaven. Let us pray. God, we love you so much. And one of the challenges of this text, there's a lot of weird stuff in it, but the challenge over and over is to trust you in the midst of life when it gets scary and when it gets hard. When we have this overwhelming temptation to try to take matters into our own hands, when we have this overwhelming temptation to get even in the midst of our anger or whatever it might be, the challenge over and over is to trust you with more, to trust you with our fears so that you can give us peace, to trust you with our anger that you are the one who justifies, that you are the one who gets vengeance, that you are the one that rights all wrongs, to trust that you've got us in the midst of life. Father, we confess to you today that we are sinners and we are broken and we make bad decisions. And so we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for the promised one who came as a fulfillment of what was promised so long ago so that you can say to us we're forgiven, so that you can say to us that you've got us, so that you can say to us that we are yours. And we pray that in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.